Hi, I'm Carlos Frias, and this is Sundial. South Florida is full of examples of conflicts arising when the public good meets private interests. Today on the show, we have two stories of what happens when the public and private sectors overlap, causing ethical dilemmas. Not surprisingly, they both involve real estate. First, we'll hear from WLRN investigative reporters Joshua Ceballos and Danny Rivero. They spent months looking into the guardianship program of Miami-Dade County. It's a nonprofit agency funded by the county and state to help care for people who can't take care of themselves and sometimes sell their homes to cover the cost of their care. Plus, we'll hear a radio documentary about how developers and cities clash over how to restore hundreds of Art Deco buildings on Miami Beach. That's coming up after the news. I'm Carlos Frias. This is Sundial. Lilia Bone was 85 when the state decided she couldn't take care of herself anymore. She needed to be in a nursing home. She had no family. She was living alone. But she did have a home. That's where a guardianship program is supposed to step in. A nonprofit fully funded by the government is supposed to take over the care of a person like Lilia. In some cases, they sell the home to help pay for the person's care. The guardianship program sold Lilia's Hylia house, and the company that bought her home resold it for more than four times the price. Lilia died two years later without seeing any of that. WLRN reporters Joshua Ceballos and Danny Rivero spent months looking into the guardianship program of Dade County and cases like Lilia's. What they found is a blurred line. Here are Josh and Danny summing up the issue. Attorneys and advocates we've talked to say our findings raise issues about the lack of oversight and lack of transparency of the guardianship program. Linda Allen is a retired Pinellas County judge who's handled hundreds, if not thousands, of guardianship cases. It certainly doesn't have a good look to it, does it? <laughs> At all. Here's a few examples we found by looking through property sales records. Express Homes bought a home one day in 2012 and sold it the next day for $12,000 more. Another in 2013 was bought and resold for a $50,000 profit the same day. And just last year, Express Homes resold a house for $265,000 more than the company paid for it four months earlier. And according to court filings, these homes are being sold without going through a documented bidding process. It suggests to me that the purchase price from the guardianship was likely problematic and not based upon the actual fair market value of the property if somebody is able to immediately sell it to someone else for substantially more. That doesn't seem right. It's our first story today that shows where government and private business overlap, ethical questions can often arise. To talk more about this story are Danny Herrero and Joshua Ceballos. Danny, Josh, thank you so much for coming in and talking a little bit more about your exhaustive reporting. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, jump in here anytime. <laughs> no, Danny, first of all, we, we've talked a little bit about the, the outline of the program, but tell me a little bit more about the people that a, a guardianship program is intended to help. Right. This program and others like it across the state, because there are a lot across the state. It's just this is the biggest by far in, in Florida. Um, this is intended as a program of last resort. So if there's 
somebody, it's usually elderly people, they lose the ability to take care of themselves in the in the eyes of the state. They're they're not bathing. Maybe they, they don't have the the money to keep up with their food or they have, you know, a lack of transportation. They can't get to and from the the store. Just the, they lack the ability to do basic things. Sometimes it's cognitive dysfunction, dementia, things like that, or some other kind of issue that arises with, with age, especially. Um, this program steps in and it's supposed to help people who don't have enough money to hire private guardians to take care of them. And um, so they the, they get money from the, the state government and from the Miami-Dade County, and they're supposed to step in and take care of that person's life, essentially. I mean, they take control of the assets, their vehicles, their property, decision-making. Yeah, these are folks who essentially have have no no uh, living family or no family that 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 has agreed to step up to take care of them so it's uh, rather than be left on their own the state at some point in, through some process decides that that they can't care for themselves J- Josh um, I read in your reporting that half of all guardianship cases are in Miami-Dade County like are coming from Miami-Dade guardianship yeah program? yeah uh, Miami-Dade County and and the guardianship program of, of Miami-Dade County are it's very big they handle a lot of cases you know um, over a thousand cases, and and the they do a lot of transactions, and and they're also they do really important work, and that's something that we also mentioned in our reporting, um, because like Danny was saying, they these the people who are in their care are people who don't have living family members, don't have family members in the state, or in some cases don't have family members who want to take care of them. And people so, yeah. people rely these folks rely on the government at this point because as a final safety net, yeah, to take care of them. Right, and just to to clarify. It's the nonprofit, but the nonprofit has essentially been given responsibility by the state to fulfill this almost governmental duty, right? Right. It's not a government agency. It's not a government agency, but the state gives the nonprofit the ability to do all these things that otherwise, you know, you, you don't typically get the ability to control every aspect of someone's lives. But in this case, the state says, well, if you meet this criteria and a court agrees the person is truly incapacitated... We're empowering this nonprofit, which the government funds, to make those decisions, mm-hmm. and and it's uh, and it's also these these uh, agencies are fully funded by the government, so right. there's something there. So one of the ways in which the these agencies provide care, uh, get money to provide care, is by selling assets, and the major asset sometimes is the house. To tell me about a little bit about um, how that process is supposed to go, Josh. Right. So, yeah, a lot of the times these people, they don't have money. Maybe they didn't even have money to take care of themselves when they were you know, outside of the program. Um, but one of the ways that the guardianship program is allowed to get money to care for them is to sell their property, to sell their assets. And the way that that's supposed to go is the guardianship program um, has to go before the court and they have to give a petition and say petition for sale of real property, which would be the house or petition for sale of automoto- automobile, something like that. And then the court has to uh, read the petition, which usually says something like, we need to take care of this person's debts. They have a mortgage or we need to take care of their nursing home fees or something like that. And we have this property that we can sell. And so the funds are going to go directly to that. Then the court will agree and then they sell the property. And that's it, it has to go to a special account that is only for this person's care. And so they, they sell this property, but now I was I would be thinking if they're selling a property of mine, they'd hire a real estate agent, they put it on the market, you know, they they sell it to the 
the you know the the person who who offers the most you know they treat it basically like a real estate sale but from I understand from your reporting that process is more like a bidding process it's not really like an open market for the sale of that house right and and this is where some of the issues with oversight and transparency um, come to the forefront according to people we've talked to for this um, because you're right I mean usually if someone's selling a house the main way you get the most bang for your buck is you put it on Zillow you put it on somewhere and you open it to the general public right um, a lot of what happens in this case is it goes through the courts because judges are supposed to sign off on the sale of certain homes, right? And then the the guardianship program has to file something with the court saying, can we sell this home? And what we found when these homes are being sold, they're going to the courts and saying, hey, we wanna sell this home. Maybe we have permission to sell this home. And by the way, we have an offer for X amount. Can we sell it to that person? And there's not record of bidding going on or or that they're not writing in those documents hey we open it up you know to the general market we posted it on these big websites we um held open houses we did other things for it it's just we have this offer can we sell it and then the courts are saying sure yeah sell right. it yeah like the petitions don't say we got this many offers. We think this is the best offer. It's just like, this is the offer we got from this one entity and uh, we want to take it. And, 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 and in a real estate market like Miami's, obviously where uh, real estate is so many of people's institutional wealth, like it's their, their, their sole source of where they've saved up over the years. And in a, in a market like Miami's where that can be many hundreds of thousands as people who are trying to buy houses now, that's a process that you would feel like that's that's their best. They should really work their hardest to get folks. Well, th this is part of the concern that we've heard. Um, you know, one of the people we talked to is Linda Allen. She's a retired judge from Pinellas County. She oversaw guardianship cases, hundreds, if not thousands. She said she oversaw over 20 years. And she said, look, there's nothing in the law that says you have to open these things up for bidding, that it has to be put on the open market. But under her interpretation, a part of what she, she finds troubling is that if you don't do that, how is the program living up to their responsibility to get the most money they can for the people under their care, which is a legal duty? So she's saying it, the law doesn't say you have to open up to bidding, but if we're not seeing that they're opening it up to bidding and it's being offered to the general market, then we don't know that they're getting the most money. And ultimately, that the cases they do want to get the most money because they, we don't know how long they're going to be caring for these folks. And the, and the money that they get from the sale goes to the care of the person who they're taking care of. So the difference between, you know, selling a house for two hundred thousand dollars as opposed to three hundred fifty thousand dollars—that's a lot of money when you're talking about end of life care for someone. Yeah, and you bring up a good point also that you don't know how long somebody's going to be within the guardianship program. A lot of the people we looked at were elderly and you know, not too long after they entered the guardianship program, they did pass away. Um, but some people are in there for many years. Some people live for a long time. And it's guardianship is not only for the elderly, it's also for the mentally incapacitated. So it could be a younger person who has some kind of mental illness and they can't take care of themselves. They could be there in there for a long time. Maybe they inherited a home, something yeah. like that. And and Josh, you reported. So then this begins to lead to some places where there's a clash, right? You, you both reported uh, that there's already a lawsuit um, against uh, one of these entities. Um, and that it leads me to feel like when I when I read your reporting, I feel like I see potential for conflicts of interest. 
Can we talk about one case here? Um, I'm really curious about talking about um, the president, a former president of the guardianship program, Sergio Mendez, also owns a law firm, private law firm, and is also involved in several of these sales, according to your reporting. Actually, I would love to hear a little bit about your reporting first and then talk about it a little mm, bit more. And, sure. and several cases where some potential conflicts appear to arise. Sure. Sergio Mendez is the former president and a current board member of the nonprofit guardianship program. And we found in our reporting that he has been involved in sales to Express Homes in his personal capacity as an attorney. For example, in one case we found, Mendez played four different roles in a string of transactions on the same property. He was president of the nonprofit that sold the home. As an attorney, he prepared documents for the sale to Express Homes. He then acted as escrow agent. And he prepared documents for Express Homes again when the company resold the property for profit, potentially making money for himself with each transaction. It doesn't really pass the smell test, I guess, is the way we used to say it. Barbara Peterson is the executive director of the Florida Center for Government Accountability. That, that right there to me, when I hear about someone playing, working both for this non-governmental or this... this um, Nonprofit. This nonprofit organization and playing several of these private roles leads me to believe that, you know, that there, that there are some issues that, that need to be worked out with this program. Right. And, and Barbara brought it up. I mean, it's one of the reasons that we were reporting it because it's not something that, I mean, for a lay person hearing that, it's you are playing multiple roles. And, and to, you know, she said this raises questions. And, the questions are there and they're open. And, and I will mention, we tried to contact this attorney, Sergio Mendez, several times, called his office, left off messages with his secretary, sent emails, follow-up emails. So we've tried to get some kind of response from, from him in particular, and, and we haven't. Um, but, you know, from advocates we've talked to that have been following this, it's similar situations to this where people are seeing holes in oversight and holes in in laws about who's watching what's going on because the ward the person that's under custody custody is not the word the person that's under guardianship they have legal representation in this process at the very 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 beginning like when they're put under guardianship but once they're under guardianship they have no right under florida law to have legal representation the guardianship is supposed to be representing them and and the 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 holes that that have been brought to our attention from advocates is well who's watching the guardians it's 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 the watchmen who's question. Wa who's watching the watchers right so, exactly so i i want to come back on this point because uh this has already led to a lawsuit and i want to get into both uh, a, a bit of the the controversy push pull there but we're going to take a little break we're talking with wlrn reporters daniel rivero and joshua ceballos about our their recent investigation uh into the florida guardianship programs we're back on sundial this is carlos frias our guests today are WLRN investigative reporters Daniel Rivero and Joshua Ceballos. They have recently looked into um, uh, the, the issue of guardianship programs, which are supposed to take care of folks who have no one else to look care for them. Um, but there have already been some controversies that have come up through this program, and I want to get into one of those. There's already been, there was a lawsuit filed. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Jose Alvarez filed a lawsuit 
um, that really is is kind of surprising here. He he sued one of the companies that purchased this program. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that lo- what that lawsuit is and who yeah. the who his suit is against. Yeah, so I can I can explain a little bit about that. So, Go for it, Josh. Um, the, what we found in our reporting is that the guardianship program of Dade County has, over the last 12 years, uh, sold homes to a company called Express Homes. We've found uh, 14 inter- uh, transactions, 14 properties. Direct interactions. Direct interactions that are highlighted in our reporting. Um, where the guardianship program of Dade County sells to Express Homes, and you've already told us that this that this the sale program is not like uh, open market. It's where not, they it's hire from, a realtor. From the court records that we've yeah. seen, there's there's no court record of of an open market bidding. That the guardianship program comes to the court and, and does a petition and says, "Hey, Express Homes has already put in an offer for this property," um, and Express Homes is uh, owned by Carlos Morales, who is the husband of the uh, City of Miami's City Attorney Victoria Mendez. Okay, so the Miami City Attorney is married to this uh, to a Carlos Morales, who owns this company that's like a, a company that buys these homes. Correct. Yeah, right. That buys these homes from the guardianship program and then sells them um, for profit. Some uh, in a few cases, like two or three cases, within a few days or within a week. Um, and sometimes they do remodel and, and do it over several years. Um, but the the lawsuit from Jose Alvarez is interesting because his home, the home that they bought from him was not under guardianship, um, but it kind of uh, touches on some of these issues. So Jose Alvarez, he claims in his lawsuit that he had this home. It was his family home that his parents uh, bought and he grew up in. Um, and his mother, his father had died. His mother had dementia and he inherited the house and it had some liens on it. It had some fines that were accumulating every day because of some um, illegal additions at, to the house. He claims that he reached out to City of Miami attorney Victoria Mendez for help with the liens because he wasn't getting anywhere with the code enforcement. And according to his lawsuit, he says, Victoria Mendez said, hey, let me recommend you to my husband and his company, Express Homes. So she's she's he calls her as a citizen reaching out to a government to government for help. And she's reversed, refers him to a private privately owned company that is actually her husband's business. That's, that, what he that, claims. that's what's being claimed, yes. That's what he's claiming in his lawsuit. And as a side note, that that couple, they live in a home that was purchased through this guardianship program, purchased yeah. out of the guardianship program. Yes, they do own. They do currently live in a home that was bought through the guardianship program of Dade County. Um, it's a little bit of a tangled web of paperwork that that we we have to go through to to tell you which I won't get into about all that paperwork and the in the web that it is but yes that home was purchased through the guardianship program and, and, and it's where the the legal address of express homes is, is and, their home and ultimately this this man sells his home to this to, to express homes to this private company um, because he's got something like two hundred and seventy thousand dollars in mounting fines and according to reporting this these fines are kind of whisked away. Right. Went after Express Homes buys it. Right. So according to Alvarez's lawsuit, he says that he talked to Carlos Morales to try and get the liens cleared. And Carlos Morales told him, oh, it's going to be too expensive and onerous for you. Sell me the property and I'll and I'll take care of it. So he's um, Carlos Morales buys it from him for two hundred and five thousand dollars, which in the lawsuit they claim was below market value. And then Carlos Morales does some some work on it, and he goes before the Code Enforcement Board of the City of Miami. So this board, this is where you go if you get a lien on your property. You go to this board and you try and mitigate it. You say like, "Hey, I've tried. I've worked on what you said. I, I fixed the violations. Can you lower 
the the fines and usually they'll lower it to a, a lower amount. Um, but in the case of Carlos Morales, he went before the board and said, hey, I bought this property from Jose Alvarez. It belonged to his mom. And I think it was cited incorrectly, but I fixed it all. And the code enforcement board said, OK, we're going to take the fines down to zero free of charge. So so essentially just to whittle it down into a couple lines. Right. Um, what is being alleged in the lawsuit is that this citizen was having issues with the city that was having code enforcement violations. He contacted the city, he says, Victoria Mendez, the city attorney, and he alleges that she put him in touch with her husband and that her husband said, well, you know, there's a lot of issues here. You're not going to be able to deal with it. Just trust me, like sell it to me below market value because you can't sell it for higher because you have all these issues with it. And then, you know, Alvarez in his lawsuit says he felt like he had no choice but to do that. And then shortly after he goes before the city and gets it down to zero. What now you're reporting also, you did contact them and what what was their response? Contact uh, Carlos uh, I, Morales. I'm sorry, the, the folks being sued, uh, Carlos Morales and uh, Victoria Mendez. Right. Victoria Mendez, the right. city attorney. So Victoria Mendez said in an email to us that basically she has no involvement with her husband's company, no involvement with Express Homes, and uh, no involvement in cases, especially with if they are in the city of Miami. And we also reached out to Carlos Morales, who did not speak to us directly, but spoke through his attorney. And his attorney said, you know, there's nothing wrong. They're not doing anything untoward. If anything, they're helping the guardianship program and, and helping these people uh, who are are under their care. And he also says in the case of Jose Alvarez that he did nothing wrong in that situation. And I'll, I'll just add, I mean, we did find one other case that Express Homes did buy through the guardianship program. And then um, really quickly, similar situation. It was a hundred sixty something thousand dollars in liens against that property. And um, I'll, uh, Morales got the the code enforcement board to get it down to just over three thousand. So he got a hundred fifty plus thousand dollars of that money removed. Okay, so and, and he's quickly resold the home. Right, and and this doesn't this obviously your reporting uh, on WLRN dot org gets really into the details of it. Um, there's another case. Uh, I mean, there's there's several different areas. Another one is uh, uh, Mayor Francis Suarez. He was involved in several of the sales as an attorney while he was also the city commissioner right um what what is he what has he said regarding these sales to you guys well we did contact um mayor suarez and and, and his people and they did not get back to us um and again you've been trying over the yeah, last yeah we've weeks been, to yeah to we've listen. been we've been trying to get something but i mean just according to the documents and this is property transaction records at the it's all at on the, the property appraisers website yeah and the clerk of courts um when we were looking through these addresses that were bought and sold through the the, the guardianship program mm -hmm. um mayor suarez his name and signature is on is on a couple of them and and in in two of these cases it was those cases where a home was bought from the guardianship program and then resold for profit in one case the same day as the original sale and in one case, the next day, and Mayor Suarez prepared the documents for the sale and the resale of those homes. All within the same day. So all within the sale, a property well, what, going one, up for what, sale, being sold and being transferred all within the same right. day. Right. One of them was the same day. One of them was the very next day. But then in both of those cases, Mayor Suarez, you know, he he represented on the sale and the resale. So he was pretty heavily involved in, in those transactions. And yet no, no comment from them. So has the Florida Code of Ethics weighed in? So we, we, we spoke to someone from the Florida Center for Government Accountability, uh, Barbara Peterson, 
And basically what, what she's saying is it, it, it doesn't pass the smell test. I think we heard that clip earlier that there, there, there's a whiff of impropriety, according to her, um, because of the connections that Carlos Morales has with uh, the city attorney, Victoria Mendez, and the fact that Carlos Morales is able to go before this city board and get his, his liens cleared. Um, and uh, something that we found in our reporting that we mentioned was there's a string of emails between um, Carlos Morales and uh, his one of his wife's subordinates um, for the for the Alvarez property where he uh, emails the subordinate and is like, hey, I've got this property. It's got some liens. I need to sell it immediately, but I can't do so without the liens. Can we can you get me on the at the hearing? And the agenda had already been posted. And these are the kinds of things you have to set up, you know, with Weeks some time. Weeks in advance, right? Weeks in advance. Yeah. And but she, the the subordinate, went to the city and was like, "Hey, I'd really like to get this this property on the agenda." And the city administration eventually did say, "Okay, we'll do it, but we don't want to make any exceptions again." This is yeah. I, ha- I have the email here. I'll, I'll read it. This is um, the chief of the city's hearing boards, which puts things on the agenda and mm-hmm. and you know writes to the subordinate of Morales's wife. We're getting complicated here, but this is what it says. Um, the quote is, the last thing I want is for anyone to accuse me or hearings boards of making exceptions by putting this case on the agenda under such a short time span. But in the end, they did put it on the agenda. So they did make the exception. And, and how, long did have... that, how long did that take? According uh, to it you? was like a not that long. Yeah, it was pretty quickly. And then by the time it was done, the 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 hearing was within a week, you know, and so he was able to get there within the same month. It was all within in July of, of that year. And, of 2018. Yeah. Right. It seems like what you guys have been coming up against in your reporting is the issue of transparency, right? Like the the idea of, of, of how these folks are, are chosen to go in, in guardianship programs, how their property is decided that has to be sold, how those sales happen. All of those things seem to be, uh, seem to be have an issue with, with transparency. Has, is any of that in the works to change or fix any of that? So that that is one thing that's actually a work in progress, I think I would say. Um, last year, the Florida legislature passed a, a bill, which was signed by Governor DeSantis, um, which will actually create the state's first guardianship database. Um, because the problem is a lot of this documentation... Well, there's, not, there's not even a database, so we don't, we no, don't no, know who's, not. Who, I mean, the guardians, who the guardians are. I mean, this is, this is all information that exists within the courts somewhere. Good luck getting your hands on all of it. It's going to cost thousands of dollars because they charge, at least in Miami-Dade, a dollar per page um, to get a copy. So this is information that exists, but it's not being collected across the whole state. So one of the people we talked to was Karen Marillo at the AARP, AARP Florida. Mm-hmm. And um, she said this is a pervasive issue in Florida. She said, if you ask me... If you if we ask her how many guardianship cases exist, she can't tell us because there's we have not been tracking that information in any kind of way. So when it comes to a judge or someone trying to have oversight and to identify patterns, et cetera, the way you do that is through data. But we don't have that yet. The law they passed will create that database. And that's supposed to go into effect in January of 2024. Um you know, in, in talking to, to her, I mean, her organization is very interested in following up with some of our reporting and seeing if there's further holes that need to be filled, further kinds of oversight. Because, I mean, I'll mention um, a similar... No, there, there was a case out of Pinellas County in 2019. There was a guardian that was arrested and 
um, you know, face some pretty severe charges for abusing the authority that she had over people under her care. And she was selling properties for well under market value, reselling them the same day, um, taking advantage of the process and the lack of transparency within the courts to basically not do right by the people under her care, which is illegal. Yeah, it seems like there's an issue here between what is the spirit of the law and like what is the what people are actually doing around the edges of it and mm -hmm. is, is what it seems like to me. Can you guys um, talk a little bit about what advocates want? What do people have the folks that you've talked to? What do they want to see changed in this program? So I, they definitely want more transparency, like you've been saying. It's, you know, like the database, anything to start so that people can track what's going on, what these guardianship programs are doing throughout the state. Um, who's buying the houses, right? So something that one of our sources said was, you know, if with a database or with some kind of, with more transparency, you'd be able to see if the same realtor is buying these properties over and over and are they below market value? Is, are they paying fair prices? Things like that. That's, that's what they want to see. I mean, just to give you kind of an insight into our reporting, we mm -hmm. had to go, you know, multiple times to the county courthouse in downtown and go to the probate court section and, because because the guardianship cases are handled in probate, those the docket of documents normally you'd be able to see online. You can't see that online because it's probate. These are these are courts that handle folks' uh, estates after they've right. passed. Exactly. exactly. After they've died. They're, so, they're very specific. So yeah. what we had to do is we had to look at the dockets online and just see like the document names. We couldn't open them. Write them down and go to the probate court and say, hey, we'd like you to print out these documents that we've named in these cases. And then they charge you a dollar a page and they process it. A little bit and tedious. If, it's a little you, bit tedious. And if you print out 100 pages, it's $100. It's 100 <laughs> Right. It's $100. And if, and if you're just an average citizen and you're going down there, you know, you're you're faced with both. Uh, I would imagine that the the issue of knowing where to look for documents, right. how to find documents, uh, how to see things, how to print them. You know, the expense of that. And and this is this is why people should donate to WLRN. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because it's not cheap, actually. Because this but, kind of work. But but you I, are each I, salaried I employees. Will, I will mention. I mean, while we're talking about it, um, I did speak to the executive director of the guardianship program, and. Um, who is that? When, and, what did they say? Car Carlos McDonald is his name. And he did not accept some of our reporting. He said that we were wrong in in some ways, that um, we, we couldn't know a lot of these things. And, and part of the reason he said is w the only thing we have access to is what's available on the public docket, what's available on... Um, public databases right. that, you we have can, no, that we can access. You have no special powers. You're no, a private citizen. Yeah, you know, I can. Working, I can. And, and so, so he told me. To get the information. He, he said, "Please trust us. Like rest assured that we do bidding, that we do other things." But he told me, "But Danny, you're not going to see that if you look in the court records because we don't have to to provide that in the court records." Trust us, but we won't show you. And I and I did tell Carlos. Please, if you have documents of these things, please provide it to us. And and we have not heard back from that. Um, what so you, that's where it is. Uh, Josh, can you talk to me a little bit about uh, some of your takeaways from this investigation? You know, what 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 has this led to you in, in thinking about what what you want to look into next and and how this program, uh, you know, can serve folks better. Yeah, I mean, what what our advocates are, have been saying, what the people we talked to have said is, you know, these these are some of the most vulnerable people, and they just want to make sure that 
the the programs that are taking care of them are doing the utmost that they can to make sure that they get the best value for them. That's what that's what our the people we talk to have been saying. And so we're you know this this investigation is is ongoing. We're still looking into other things, um, other details here and there. And we'd welcome anybody who's who's listening who maybe knows about a case here in Miami Dade or in South Florida um, where a family member was in guardianship, or if they know anyone who is in guardianship or has any kind of dealings with this whole situation, um, please contact us. Our, our emails are on the website, um, and or, or on you could reach out to us on Twitter and uh, let us know. And we're we're still following this. And and I, and I think just one thing I'll add is, um, I mean the guardianship program of Dade County and also guardianship programs across the whole state. I, I don't want to minimize. I mean, they, they, they do incredibly important work. Yeah. I mean, this is, it, they do a lot of work helping the most vulnerable people that we can think of, right? People who are incapable of caring for themselves and they do very important work. And, and, you know, some of the, the advocates that we, that we talked to in this, I said, please, put that in there that even if you're looking into things, even if you're giving scrutiny to these programs, they do a lot of good work. Like things would be unfathomably bad if these, if these programs didn't exist. But at the same time I was told, but issues do arise and, 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 and scrutiny is warranted. So please say that they do very good things, which they do. And also, if something arises to the level of scrutiny, give that scrutiny. Right. These put these programs work. They do a lot of good work, but they can be better is what it sounds like. That's what we've been told. We've been speaking with Denny Rivero and Josh Ceballos. They're part of WLRN's investigative team. Uh, they published a special investigative report titled Unguarded about uh, the uh, Florida's guardianship program that's supposed to take care of the most vulnerable. You can read their full report and listen to the radio documentary at WLRN. When we come back, will modern glass towers overshadow Miami Beach's historic Art Deco? WLRN reporter Veronica Saragovia tells us about the history of Art Deco and why developers are clashing with preservations. We're back on Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Cities around the world have landmark buildings. The Sydney Opera House, the Empire State Building, Miami Beach doesn't have one, but hundreds of Art Deco buildings. They were built in the 30s and 40s, and it costs a lot to maintain them. WLRN reporter Veronica Saragovia tells us about the challenges of preserving Art Deco when luxury condo developers agree to foot the bill. A 12-page spread in the December 1947 edition of Life magazine showcases the glamour of Miami Beach's Art Deco hotels. An aerial shot shows the pool at the Raleigh Hotel at Collins Avenue and 18th Street. The Raleigh pool deck is exceptional. Michael Hughes is an Art Deco historian. It was extraordinary that they spent the money to scallop that pool the way they did, and you can step in and you step into shallow water, and then you go into deeper water. This pool and the Raleigh Hotel have been closed to the public since 2017, after damage from Hurricane Irma. Preserve the integrity of what is the crown jewel of South Beach, the Raleigh Hotel. And a new development is putting the South Florida staple in jeopardy. Local 10's Trent Kelly joins us. Miami Beach Historic Preservation Board meetings don't usually make it on the local TV news. 
but this one did in September 2020 because of a controversial proposal for an angular tower in a city known for its curved lines. Tower right next door on that property that has many historians and residents up in arms. We're seeing this again and again. A developer buys a historic but rundown Art Deco building, pledges to restore some portion of the original structure, and then builds a lucrative condo tower alongside it. Some see this as the way to save historic buildings from getting torn down. Alfredo J. Gonzalez is an attorney for the development company Schwo, one of the owners of the Raleigh and two other historic hotels next door. This project brings the Raleigh back to its former glory, opening up the Coppola, opening up the Raleigh Pool, and the Richmond and the South Seas have the opportunity to have a better development than has been proposed in the past. Others warn development like this will destroy what makes Miami Beach special. People don't come here to film big glass towers. They come here to film the historic buildings. They Members of the public lined up virtually to speak via Zoom. You haven't let Miami Beach Historic District get Disney-fied. Please don't let it happen. It's Thanks. not preservation, it's demolition. Those are the voices of Herb Sosa, Maria Luzietti, and Stephen Aftikoff. They're all Miami Beach residents. All three of the hotels were designed by L. or Lawrence Murray Dixon in the 1940s. Under the plan, Chavot would restore the original facades. The Raleigh would once again open as a hotel, with guest access to that famous pool. Most of the rears of the South Seas and Richmond would be demolished to make room for a new condominium tower 200 feet high. In this meeting, the Historic Preservation Board voted to limit the new tower to 175 feet. Two years later, in August of 2022, a bulldozer began tearing down the back of the Richmond. How can you have a historic district when you're knocking down buildings? George Neary is a longtime Art Deco preservationist. He compares these unique buildings to the pyramids in Egypt. Something so important but one of the developers comes up and says, you know, you're not making enough money off of this. So what I suggest is that we pull out the back where no one can see. We'll save the bricks because we're preservationists. We'll put them over here and take care of them. And we'll open Cleopatra's restaurant. And that way, no one's the wiser. You're using the pyramids for its most use. And that way, we'll make money and everyone will be happy while you're desecrating a UNESCO treasure. I met up with Neary in the Art Deco district. He's wearing a black cap with the word cool spelled out in multicolored rhinestones. Neary's worn a lot of hats on the beach. In the 1990s, he led the Miami Design Preservation League, which fights for historic buildings on Miami Beach. He's also worked in tourism for the Greater Miami Convention and Visitors Bureau. Neary says what brings people here is the Art Deco. People don't come here to see Fort Lauderdale high-rises. They don't come here to see Daytona high-rises. They don't come here to go to Orlando. Welcome to our uh, Art Deco tours. Melinda Berman is a volunteer Art Deco tour guide with the Miami Design Preservation League. I love it down here, oh, right? I, I mean, how oh, can you no, not? I love Art Deco. I'm in heaven. I'm moving here too in a few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leaving the rain from Seattle. But we were wondering, mid-beach... This woman from yes. Seattle joined for a tour on a sunny day last fall. I like to get a hint of where people are from before we get going. St. Louis, Missouri. St. 
Louis. New Orleans. New Orleans. Uh, Washington, D.C. Paris. People join from all over the world. Canada. The U.K. Singapore. Denmark. To see Miami Beach's iconic buildings. Berman says the world became acquainted with Art Deco during an exhibition in Paris in 1925, and then architects here added the city's own twist. The element of threes, the two symmetrical sides and the center rising taller in the middle. See those little shelves over the windows? We call those eyebrows to shade the rooms from the sun. Carl Fisher hoped that sun would attract more tourists to Miami Beach a century ago. He was an automobile industrialist from Indianapolis, and he financed projects like the Dixie Highway, connecting Michigan to Florida. He had the mangroves cleared out for development after the city was first incorporated in 1915. Fisher advertised Miami Beach as paradise for sale. In the winter of 1918, he put a billboard in Times Square. That's where you wanted the people to come from, the snowy north with money. This is from a WLRN documentary about Fisher called The Man Who Built Miami Beach. Tourism began to dry up after a Category 4 hurricane in 1926 killed hundreds of people in greater Miami. Then came the Great Depression in 1929. After the hurricane and the Depression of 29 begins, those owners sell out. Historian Michael Hughes says property owners on Miami Beach were desperate and stopped discriminating against Jewish buyers. That desperation ended up being a boon for Miami Beach. And it wasn't that people came here rich. They came here and let's say two or three families came together and started building small hotels. These small hotels were built in the popular style of the time, what we now know as Art Deco. And the tourists who showed up in the late 1930s were not the ones Fisher envisioned. These were very modest travelers. It was their maybe one vacation a year. They were leaving a rough-and-tumble New York City just to have two weeks in the sun. Hey, you're wasting your time, honey. I'm down on my last 20 bucks. Clark Gable was already an actor during World War II when he enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Corps. He and other soldiers stayed in Miami Beach's Art Deco hotels during training. Then from the 50s to the 70s, the small Art Deco buildings became home for mostly Jewish retirees. Political activist and preservationist Barbara Kapitman was appalled by the rundown state of the buildings when she moved here in the 70s from New York. She started the Miami Design Preservation League in 1976, alongside other activists, including Leonard Horowitz. Eventually, I got together with Leonard Horowitz, and he said, why don't we get together a bunch of people who feel like we do and form a design organization to save what's left here. What was left was the largest concentration of Art Deco buildings in the United States. That's from a film about her called Barbara's Crusade. She and her peers worked to get Miami Beach's Art Deco District, one square mile, listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1979. That designation incentivized building owners to restore them with a 20% tax credit. These buildings were rich in Art Deco features, but drab in color. Horowitz got dozens of them painted in pastel colors in the 1980s. But efforts to save these buildings didn't always work. The New Yorker Hotel, for instance, came down in 1982. One can never forgive somebody who tears down a building like the New Yorker. 
Kaplan and her colleagues worked to raise the building's national profile. She gave an Art Deco tour to Andy Warhol in 1980. His appearance this morning on Miami Beach to tour the Art Deco district turned into a media event with cameras, reporters, groupies, kids. The hit TV show Miami Vice filmed many scenes with Art Deco buildings in the backdrop. In one episode, the characters ran into the Senator Hotel, which was located at Collins Avenue and 12th Street. There. They went into the Senator. The heartthrob undercover detectives, played by actors Philip Michael Thomas and Don Johnson, are on their way to a drug bust. Back up, back up, police officer! Get around. I, I thought they were just souvenirs. Save it, pal. You're under arrest. Roughly three years later, the building's owners decided to demolish it. Just after noon today, the big teeth of the backhoe came down and took big chunks out of the former pool lounge at the old Senator Hotel. This news clip was included in the film Barbara's Crusade. Art Deco preservations tried everything to keep the building from being destroyed. They chained themselves to the front door. They brought plaques declaring the Senator a national historic treasure. Police kicked the preservation. Barbara pushed me, you know, I was one of her foot soldiers. Thorne Grafton is an architect whose expertise includes preservation and sustainable design. And he helped Barbara Kappenman to try to stop the total destruction of the senator. He remembers the demolition had begun. They found asbestos. They had to stop. And she said, we have a beautiful fragment of the senator left, and they want to put a parking garage there. Kappenman asked him to do a rendering that proposed keeping the exterior walls of the senator and putting the parking lot behind it. He worked on it and took it into the owner's office with TV reporters waiting outside. So I went back to Barbara and the cameras and said, they're not going to do it. Even as some Art Deco buildings started to come down, Art Deco continued to show up on screen. In movies like The Birdcage in the mid-1990s, where are you driving them? South Beach, Florida. And in a video for Will Smith's 1997 song, Welcome to Miami. Preservationists hope the attention through pop culture would build support for maintaining Art Deco buildings. But that fame also attracted developers. In the 1990s, condo towers started going up on Miami Beach. They are destroying the goose that lays the golden egg. My name is Matilde Bauer, but they call me Maddie. Maddie Bauer was a city commissioner from 1999 to 2007, and then she served three terms as mayor until 2013. The whole point is not to stop development. The whole point is to keep the historic district unique, to keep something of the beach that people will want to come and visit. But the city's position is that it has to keep evolving. Retaining the character of the city, but not being a museum city. Debbie Tackett works for the city of Miami Beach as the architecture and preservation officer. She puts the onus on owners to do their part. We don't see needed repairs being done to a lot of the historic buildings, so that should be a concern to everyone. The historic buildings that we have on the beach, especially the ones that were built in the 30s, are expensive to maintain. They're expensive to repair. You know, people think that maybe you can go in and just repair buildings. A lot of times you have to go in the inside and completely restructure the buildings. You need to have new columns. You need to reinforce the foundation. 
A cycle of tension continues. A developer will offer to buy a building in bad shape, preserve the historic facade, and build a new condo tower on the property. Jack Finglass describes the process as a quid pro quo. He's a past chair of the city's Historic Preservation Board, and he describes himself as a hardcore preservationist. Hardcore preservation people, there aren't that many. We all have lives, and it is draining. He's against development. But he says if the city could offer more tax incentives to owners, maybe they wouldn't need to add new towers. They could never squeeze out enough money from the little historic buildings. That's why they say they have to have this new big glass and steel tower next to it. I can see their point, but the city is not helping the situation any by not giving them relief. Any new buildings that go up should preserve the neighborhood's sense of place. That's architect Thorne Grafton's hope. He's the great-grandson of John S. Collins, like Collins Avenue Collins. That's the skyline of Miami Beach. So you see, you know, the Delano and the National and all these great hotels with their little towers and turrets and domes and each one slightly different height. And it's just so picturesque. Grafton says it looks like a postcard and he doesn't want it to fade. That was WLRN reporter Veronica Saragovia. The story included sound from WPLG Channel 10, the Wolfson Archives at Miami-Dade College, the Miami Design Preservation League, and the Miami Beach Visitor and Convention Authority. Roberto Lopez helped with production. And that's Sundial for Tuesday, March 7th. Leslie Ovalle-Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Kitty Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's Vice President of Radio and Sundow's Engineer. Engineering our board today is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we begin our spring pledge drive. That means we're listening to some of our best conversations. Humor writer Dave Barry tells us about his life growing up and how his family, especially his mother, influenced his unique sense of humor. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. Public Media.